We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Nehemiah, and it's in the 10th chapter of Nehemiah, evening. Remember that in, in chapter 9, they had offered some confession of uh, the national sins that uh, the Israelites had done, and uh, they were about to seal a covenant and write it, uh, to make it and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests <clears throat> seal it at the end of chapter 9, and now we go into the section chapter 10. Now those who placed their seal on the document were Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hekeliah and Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malchijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Harim, Meremot, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijamin, Maaziah, Bilgai, and Shemaiah. These were the priests. The Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benui, the sons of Henadad and Kadmiel, their brethren, Shebaniah, Hodijah, Kalaita, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodijah, Bani, and Beninu. The leaders of the people, Parosh, Pahath, Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Azgad, Bebai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Adin, Ater, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodijah, Hashem, Bezai, Harif, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hezir, Meshezabel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Aniah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Halohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashabna, Maasiah, Ahijah, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Harim, and Baana. Now, if you could tell me if there are any duplicates in there, You'd be better than I am. I think there are a couple, but uh, that, that's a tough list there. Now, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of our Lord I'm sorry, of the Lord, our Lord, and His ordinances and His statutes. We would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. If the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. Also, we made ordinances for ourselves, to extract from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbaths, the new moons and the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of God. We cast lots among the priests, the Levites and the people, for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God, 
according to our fathers' houses at the appointed times year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of, of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of all trees year by year to the house of the Lord, to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, to bring the first fruits of our dough, our offerings, the fruit of sorry, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. And the priest, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithe to the house, to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouse. For the children of Israel and their children, I'm sorry, and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain of the new wine and oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are, and we will not neglect the house of our God. Well, that is a blessing right there that they made that kind of promise. Notice, however, I'll say something on a negative side. There is no evolutionary religion here. Okay, that idea that the, the religion of the Jews had evolved over the years, I've, I've kind of pointed this out a number of times in recent weeks, but it, uh, it says explicitly, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God. So they're going back a thousand years to when Moses gave the law around 1400 B.C., 14. 11440 when they exited Egypt, and now it's in the 400s or 500s, about a thousand years later, uh, 400s actually. And so um, there's no development really. The only development was that the people strayed from God and then they had to come back to God. So we reject the evolutionary theory of the uh, Old Testament religious development. And, uh, and just take it at the word of the prophets here and of Nehemiah, a secular, more so secular leader of the nation, as it were. All right. Well, we turn our attention then to our exposition of the word tonight, and I want to invite you to turn your Bible to the book of Acts in chapter number 2. I did not prepare any more in Luke uh, for you, just that section that we did this morning, but I had some material that I uh, had extra from our series in Acts chapter 2. And uh, I, I debated about whether to teach this tonight or uh, this morning because I think it's so critical for our church. And so I'm going to be encouraging our church members to, if nothing else, if, they're not, if you're not here, well, you're here, if you're not here, uh, to watch this service and this message or listen to it on the website and really grasp the uh, material that is here because I've been able to, just by sitting and studying this portion at the end of Acts 2, to extract 11 or, if you want, 12 indispensable ingredients that every church must have in its so-called recipe. 11 indispensable actions needed in every church. And uh, this is on the very first day of the church and the first weeks of its existence. And so... This does really get us back to the beginning 
uh, of the church. And let's read in Acts 2, verse 40. We'll do some review from Wednesday night and then carry on with where we were, um, where we left off, rather. Chapter 2 of Acts, verse 40. And with many other words, he, that's Peter, testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So the new church did a number of things that uh, we should be careful also to include in our own uh, church life. We uh, mentioned last time, and we'll say again just now, that there are a number of things, however, that we don't do that the early church did, the tongues, miracles, that sort of thing. We're we're in a more, uh, could I say, prosaic age just an age of kind of, you know, continuing at the, the, the grind of church life. Uh, there's not the miraculous going on today, save for um, regeneration. That's a miracle. <laughs> Regeneration's a big, huge miracle. Um, and, and God heals people sometimes as he sees fit, but we don't have the kind of gifts that they had in the Old Testament, or sorry, in the early, early New Testament church. Um, there are really only a few periods of time, if maybe you're not familiar with this. Think of the Bible and when miracles occurred in the Bible. There's the time when God created. There's the time when Moses was on the earth around that particular uh, time. Then there was another outbreak of miracles around the time of what prophets in the Old Testament? Elijah and Elisha. Extremely interesting, miraculous activity, raising people from the dead and different things like that. Um, And then, uh, you know, so really these periods of miracles just punctuate world history. It's not like they go on all the time. When was the next period of major uh, miraculous outbreak? When the Lord came. And uh, just tremendous uh, what he was doing. And then a little, you know, that kind of, we could say, waned as the uh, church began, as the apostles uh, had some um, miraculous abilities but uh, that waned after the course of time and in the next generation of the church, there really wasn't any of that left. So we're in one of those long periods waiting for uh, the Lord's return and the, the outpouring of His Spirit, as Joel 2 says. We looked at that earlier in this uh, section of Scripture. And uh, the world will see once again some very strange phenomena, uh, but uh, explicable under the, uh, under the rubric of miracle by God intervening uh, directly in the uh, world in a way outside of the normal course of nature. So we don't have that. But we do have these items that the church did and uh, models for us by way of example and explicit teaching. First of all, the first ingredient we said was preaching the gospel, and that's what Peter was doing in the long sermon that we went through up to verse 39 and 40. Um, and uh, with many words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So the church cannot be shy about telling people you must be saved from this perverse generation. Did I say that? Yeah, no, I didn't. Peter did. 
that generation was perverse just like our generation is perverse, okay? Uh, you know, no offense intended to this generation, but it is offensive what this generation does, yes? Um, so we are very clear. People out there, if you run into this video online and you're not a Christian, God is commanding all men everywhere to repent, and we beseech you to do that because it's the only good thing for your soul. There's no other thing you can reasonably do that's going to uh, provide you a benefit uh, before God. That is how you are born again, how you are born from above or given new life and have, and have that new life. So uh, Peter's sermon boiled down to the fact that Jesus is Lord and Messiah, and so that's what we tell folks. As I was saying this morning, we told our Jewish friend that Jesus is Lord. Again, prophecies about Messiah. Jesus looks awfully similar to those. In fact, so similar that they're the same, equal. And uh, it seems like there's only one, you know, one response. If Jesus has been made, declared, established as Lord and Christ by God the Father, then really, as the, uh, as the people ask Peter, what shall we do? Peter said, well, the only proper response is to repent and then be baptized because of the remission of sins. So we preach the gospel. That's number one. A church that uh, begins to fail in that area uh, is failing in number one, the number one responsibility on this list. Number two, then there's baptism, which we just alluded to. Uh, that is a responsibility of the church. Mystifies me how um, theologians, some very few theologians can suggest that baptism is not for the current church age. That is a thing that people have tried to do, but it's not a right thing at all. It's a sad thing uh, that they're trying to do. Maybe some claim that that's only for the Jewish church or something like that. That's a, that's a misnomer already. Jewish church? No, there's only one church. It's a church for Jews and Gentiles alike. So it's a Jewish Gentile church or a Gentile Jewish church, or let's just simplify and say church. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, there's, there's no call for there being a separated church um, like that. But in any case, uh, baptism, we hold to that as the second of those key ingredients of the church. Thirdly, uh, we saw that the church is to welcome in new converts. In verse number 41, 3,000 souls were added to them. And so we said, look, we want to do, we want to do two things. And I actually had th a third thing as I re looked at this again and expanded my notes uh, this past few days. Um, in addition, we want to increase the population of the church. Okay, Sunday nights it would be wonderful if this place were packed. And that would be, I mean, that would be uh, astounding. And even if it were some different people than in the morning, you're not going to hear me complain. It doesn't have to be always the same people. But it would be great if, you know, in some, in some places a Sunday night meeting is used as an evangelistic meeting. Um, <clears throat> or people come, I mean, they're serious about it, or it's a special Bible study. They want to learn. I mean, uh, you know, heard of... Uh, like G. Campbell Morgan's studies on Friday nights, packed when he taught the Bible with a blackboard and just went through the scriptures line by line. I love doing that stuff, you know, just diagramming it and writing it out and outlining it and teaching it. Um, boy, I would just love if we had a bunch of people in Ann Arbor that had a hunger 
for the Word of God. And we could add them to the church, increasing the population of the people of God, not, as we say, recycling the saints between churches and moving them around. That's a dissatisfying uh, way to, uh, to roll. But then also, addition is done by the Lord. So when we add people, we want to increase the population, but that only happens uh, when the Lord works. In verse 47 it says, And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. That passive voice there, who were being saved, could just as well say, And the Lord added to the church daily those He was saving, because He is the agent of it. I mean, who else could it be? You know, it wasn't Peter saving them. It wasn't themselves saving themselves. It was God saving them. But it's just put that way as, a, as an indirect way to kind of deal with the, the, the effect that, you know, God's working, but they're also having to respond by faith, okay? So uh, the Lord adds, and so we need to ask the Lord to do addition. Ask the Lord to do addition in our church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we continue in our message this evening, it occurs to me that we as a church should stop and pray and ask that you would not only send out laborers into your harvest field, for the field is white unto harvest, that is some of us, all of us, in some measure with co-workers and neighbors and acquaintances, but also, Lord, that you would add to the church. And Lord, each person here that I see tonight, uh, many of us, I should say, are right equipped to be able to sit next to a new believer and help them find a book in the Bible and explain to them what's happening in the church service and sit with them afterwards and answer their questions and begin a discipleship program with them and meet with them on a weekly basis or bi-weekly or whatever. We have that capability. Would you put it to use? We have time, many of us, too, if we'd make the time, if we'd care to make the time. And this is important work, so help us to do it, I pray, and develop in here a discipleship culture. And uh, we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So secondly, we said uh, last time, and not only does adding talk about increasing the population of the church, but also adding means integrating people into the church. Um, And we said it's somewhat easier in a smaller church, but like I said this morning at the end of the service, if there's somebody you don't know too well, go greet them. Don't let them out of your sight until you've grabbed their hand and said hello and my name is and and introduced yourselves because in a small church like this, there's no, absolutely no excuse that we don't know each and every one who is in our assembly. But that does happen. Um, So integrating people into the church and then thirdly, not only increasing the population, integrating people in, in terms of addition, but also add in the sense of having seeing people join the membership of the church. Some kind of formal recognition is assumed uh, here by the uh, apostolic uh, writing of, uh, and, and teaching and Luke's writing about it, record of it. Uh, it's assumed here and helpful to all involved to know who has put their stake in the ground and said, I am with this church. Very important and uh, helpful to the ministers in the church and to the other church members uh, to know who is officially with and who is not with. Uh, Number four, ingredient in the church. The church is to continue in the apostles' doctrine, teaching the word, and making sure that they believe the word. 
We the leaders teach, but that's not enough. The whole church must believe and practice. That's what we said on Wednesday night, and I'm convinced of that. We can leave it. You know, sometimes people leave it at we teach. No, we need to believe. We need to practice. Teaching is good, and I know not everybody believes all the same stuff and the details, and some are coming along and they're new and fresh off the uh, trail of sin and need to come along, but the fact is that we believe and practice the things that are taught to us. That's what it means to continue in steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. But we also uh, continue in something else, and that is the breaking of bread and eating of meals together. It says they continued steadfastly, verse 42, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayers. Okay, So we share in fellowship with one another, sharing our lives with each other, gathering, gathering for worship, um, and... Uh, you know, also fellowship in our daily activities in life. I, I love to see when Christians get together during the week, and I, I have nothing to do with it. I just hear somebody got together and went to the park, or some moms got together, or some somebody went to the zoo with somebody else, or took somebody along with them. Tremendous. That's exactly right. And I bet you enjoy those times with other Christians, and it's sanctifying for you because... It's much less likely you're going to get yourself in trouble when you're with other Christian people than when you're by yourself, wouldn't you say? You know, you're thinking, you're seeing, you're speaking, you're watching, your de- demeanor, whatever, you know. Uh, it's, it's, tough, it's tough to be, how can I say, fully self-focused and depressed when you're with other Christians that are encouraging you to, you know, up the level, as it were, just naturally by being together. So it's a wonderful thing to be together and continue steadfastly in fellowship and sharing our common life together. But then also gathering for worship, of course. That's important for us. And we've, we've dealt with that battle, uh, you know, today with uh, remote church, as people call it, or, or what happened during COVID and even before, drive-in church. There's just something doesn't ring right about that, you know, like, going to a movie back in the 60s or something like that with the big screen up there and you're in your car munching on your popcorn and fries and watching some movie. Like you're having a lot of fellowship with the family next to you and the guy and the girl in the car over there. Yeah, I don't think so. So uh, we're continuing in, in gathering for worship, not, at, not in remote church, but in real, in real church, in real gathering. Then we're continuing in uh, breaking of bread, and I'll park here just for a moment because in the breaking of bread, I think it's obvious that Christians eat meals together, but there's some disagreement in this passage. Is this breaking bread uh, a reference specifically to the Lord's table, or is it general eating of food? So some say it's exclusively the Lord's table. Um, like with Acts 20, verse 7, and 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Others respond that breaking of bread was not a technical term for the Lord's table until sometime later in church history. So it could refer to the eating of normal meals um, because breaking bread has come to mean uh, sharing food with one another. Um, Like in Luke 24, actually, let's just look at that. 
Um, I had uh, forgotten about that verse here. Luke 24, verse number 30. It says, Now as it, it, it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed, and broke it and gave it to them. And then verse number 35. And they told these... I'm sorry, they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now, that obviously wasn't the Lord's table because that was with the disciples who were on their way to Emmaus and now in Emmaus having a meal together. And We know it wasn't the Lord's table. Why? Because the Lord said, I'm not going to eat of this or drink of this fruit of the vine until that day that I come in my kingdom, right? So it's not the Lord's table there. And we have used this phrase, it's a, it's a nice phrase to say, you know, we broke bread together. Now, we've lost a little bit of the meaning of that because, uh, or the kind of origin of it, I would say, just kind of simplistically thinking, because we buy our bread and much of it's pre-sliced at the store, you know. Those manufacturers in the industrial complex have taken away the meaning of breaking bread, those evil people, <laughs> Not really. Uh, they make it more convenient for us because we don't have to take like that large loaf of, uh, you know, French bread, how it's not cut like that, right? Or you have to cut it yourself or whatever. The, the, um, what do we get? The garlic bread in those long pieces and, you know, breaking bread, you know. You break it off and pass it to the next guy down the line. Poor guy at the end of the line, he gets all the handprints on his piece of bread. <laughs> Uh, if you concern yourself about those sorts of things. But um, breaking bread, that's the idea. And uh, so, you know, I would say the most important, or we might say the most important breaking of bread was that which was celebrating the remembrance of Jesus at the Lord's table. And probably it was practiced more frequently than it is in the church today. Um, Weekly. The brethren do that weekly, every time they get together on a Sunday morning, say. Um, a view that is kind of in the middle is that believers shared meals together regularly, and at the conclusion of some of those meals, they shared uh, bread and the cup that were set aside as the memorial elements of the table. So I don't believe that breaking bread exclusively refers to the Lord's table. So either the second view, where it's just general eating, or the third view where it's general eating plus occasionally the Lord's table, it's fine. Uh, I'm not going to get too excited about which one of those you take, but it seems clear to me the Scriptures back up the notion that there is regular eating of food here. And in fact, in Acts 2.46, it says, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So it seems like this is more general. They were having meals together. You know, they weren't going out to a restaurant because it was from house to house. And I highly doubt there were many restaurants back in the day. Restaurants are actually a, how can I say, a a luxury of a um, wealthy society. I mean, listen, if you go to some of these restaurants, imagine eating at a restaurant every meal of every week of the year. How much would that cost? That's incredible, you know? We fed everybody, you know, there were probably 20 people. How many do you think for lunch here, maybe? 20, something like that? For like under $30, you know? You'd be lucky to get out of some restaurants, one person $30, right? 
some even much higher than that. But in any case, not to criticize restaurants, it's nice to go out and save yourself, use somebody else's labor, as it were, and clean up and all of that. But they went from house to house and they had meals. An encouragement for us to invite each other over to our homes because they did that in the early church. And that's the place where we can be the most kind of private, uh, the most uh, intimate with one another, share things. You know, when you go out to a restaurant, sometimes we'll have a lunch with somebody, like a business lunch. And we might talk about, you know, important spiritual things, but there's just some things that it's too private. You know, you don't want to talking with somebody sitting over there. You might not know them or whatever, but it just seems more appropriate to be at home. So, um, so the Lord's the Lord's Supper. Um, I, I think I'll save this section on the Lord's Supper until we share the Lord's Supper on August the sixth in the morning. I have several pages of notes on it, but I'm going to be omitting that this evening. And go to the bottom line here, which is we should be sharing meals together and we should be frequently having the Lord's table or communion. About once a month is the least frequently it should be in my view. Um, Christians are supposed to do things together. And since eating is a common thing that we all do several times a day, probably you're going to want to do that with other Christians. It's, It's a common life thing that we do. Um, and since celebrating the gospel through the ordinances is a good thing, we should be doing that as well. So that's what the early church was doing. That was number uh, six, I believe. Number seven, they also continued steadfastly, that is diligently, not only in the teaching of the apostles and the fellowship but, and breaking of bread, but also in prayers. They were involved in prayers. So to me... I don't see how you can get out of this. This indicates corporate prayer, doesn't it? I mean, they're continuing hearing the doctrine, they're fellowshipping together, they're breaking bread together, and they're praying. It must be together. Look, let's not try to, you know, slice it and dice it so that we get rid of corporate prayer and make it, you know, then they all went to their homes in their little prayer closets and they prayed because they were following what the Lord said to not let anybody see you pray on the street corner and all that. That's not how the early church worked. And that wasn't the Lord wasn't saying you can't have a corporate prayer meeting. He was saying something else. Like you can't be like the Pharisees standing on the corner crying out to God, pretending you're so righteous and making yourself try to look good by your religious exercises. Not the case at all. So this is corporate prayer. And... I believe that I could tackle a lot of church people with this truth. You don't ever corporately pray. Uh, That's a fact. That's a fact. So it's kind of a sad thing. And I would say, and if I may be so bold in my pastoral role, if you're not corporately praying somewhat regularly, you're, you're not following the pattern of the uh, New Testament church. And I would further say that you're walking in sin before God. You let that sink into your conscience, and uh, if you disagree, well, that's going to be between you and the Lord. But it seems to me that they continued in prayer. And I suspect that some people who 
don't participate in corporate prayer, don't have much private prayer either, unfortunately. Uh, you may correct me, I may be wrong, but I suspect with my ministry experience uh, behind me that that's what's going on in people's lives. Not good. All right, a little exhort- exhortation there. Number eight, the people were not only continuing in prayer, the church people, but they were interacting with outsiders. It says in verse 43, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And then in 47, praising God, and having favor with all the people. So there was some connection to those who were outside of the church, in part because of the wonders and signs done by the apostles. Fear and favor began to surround the fledgling church. Uh, This is what happened to the outsiders in, in fear and favor, but it appears to me that the, there was some regular interaction with the people. Otherwise, the outsiders wouldn't have interacted or, or seen what was happening. They saw or heard the preaching. They saw the changed lives. Remember, the preaching was happening in Solomon's porch or wherever in the temple, out in public. They saw changed lives. They sensed the work of God. They experienced holiness in the lives of people like they had not seen before. This did not pass to the people outside the church by miraculous osmosis. There had to be a significant level of interaction between the people in the church and the people outside of the church. Again, the Apostle Paul said, you know, I told you not to keep company with those people who are uh, adulterers and fornicators and all that sort of stuff, but not with those that are uh, outside of the church. Otherwise, you'd have to go out of the world. Talking about those that are inside, they're called a brother that are behaving that way, then you separate yourself from them because they're a danger to you. But we have to have interaction with those that are outside, and we have to do so. We have to be strong, we have to be pure, we have to be uh, fit um, you know, for that work, and be bold about it, and not afraid. Uh, I had an occasion on the, uh, at the art fair not to pat myself on the back, but just give you an example to not be afraid. Uh, we were sitting next to the booth that I mentioned to you earlier, on our right-hand side, and there was no dividing wall or dividing like sheet or anything between us and that booth. There was on the other side, there kind of that booth was kind of walled in with the walls of their booth there, but on this side there wasn't, and somebody said or did something um, like when they walked past and and these people were critical of them because, you know, they're left-wingers and that person was a right-winger who had talked to them, and the guy that was sitting right within like two feet of me blurted out the name of Jesus as a curse word because that you know conservative person didn't agree with them. Like they have all the answers, of course. And I said, hey, listen, please don't use that name like that. And uh, the fellow did apologize. So that's pretty good, you know. Um, but... And that was a way in which God restrained evil in our little midst there. That's what we're supposed to, that's one of the things we're supposed to be about. Don't say that name like that in my presence because he is the Lord and he's going to judge you. It's not a curse word or two curse words, okay? And so uh, the Lord is using the church to restrain evil in the world. We interact with people on the outside of the church. That fellow said, oh, I guess I shouldn't have 
use that because you guys are right next door to us. I said, no, actually, it's because the Lord is right next door to all of us all the time. (laughs) Me being here shouldn't be the reason why I understand from a secular viewpoint why that is. You're not supposed to come into a church and blaspheme. You can blaspheme outside of the church, I guess, but not inside the church. That's that's foolishness. Uh, God sees all. You can't hide your wickedness from God. Um, so that was an interesting, uh, interesting interaction. You can have that kind of effect on people uh, by holding their feet to the fire, so to speak. And don't be, uh, don't be shy about it. I mean, if they're allowed their truth today and their experience, why aren't we allowed our truth and our experience? If they're allowed their microaggressions, can't we have our microaggressions? Just saying, as they say, yes. All right, the next one, number nine, the church was meeting each other's needs, verses 44 and 45. Now all those who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now this isn't uh, communism because in communism, uh, the government takes what you have and gives it to other people. Here they sold what they had and gave it to Uh, the people who had legitimate need. It kept the benevolence down at the local level so they could know, you know, when when it's at this big governmental level, you get no accountability, you get people who are lazy, they don't do anything. Well, in the church, you can hold people accountable and say, listen, we've given you assistance now, you need to get your job, you need to move along and and hold them accountable to that. So they were uh, meeting needs. If there was a physical need, believers worked to meet that need. And as a church, I was just reflecting, we largely have not been challenged in that department. From time to time, we have helped one another through difficult times. And more usually, it's smaller needs like clothing, hand-me-downs, and baby things, and, and stuff of that nature. And that's also a delight to me to see bags of clothing and shoes and things passing between members in the church. And I mean, after all, you know, a- after you're done having children, or think you're done having children... <laughs> You give away all your stuff because you don't need it anymore. And, uh, you know, then uh, somebody else can use it. And then somebody, a third party can use it. And then, uh, you know, if you're like some and have a baby later, you know, on, then maybe that stuff recycles back around to you again, right? So um, that's, a, that's a great blessing. What's the point of, you know, I have to go out and buy all new stuff? Why? Why do you do that? They're just going to spit up on it. I mean... <laughs> Oh, my. So, anyway, um, so they would sell their own things. In fact, they were selling God's things which he had entrusted to them as stewards in order to meet the needs of others. And in a way, if you think about it, um, you know, who, who, needed the, who needed the $20 bill in my wallet that day, me or the guy who had no meal? I was just sitting on it you know, in my wallet. That guy could eat it. So probably more useful for him to have it than me to have it. You know what I'm saying? So meeting each other's needs. Number 10, the people in the church had, and that's another ingredient in the life of the church, a shared joyful mindset. Verse 46, so continuing daily with one accord, there's the sharing in the temple and breaking of bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, 
There's the shared, joyful mindset that they had. They had one accord, one mind, one purpose, a shared outlook, a goal, a shared mindset, a, a, a common basic philosophy. No, they were not mind-numbed robots, but they had a shared mindset since they had a shared faith, a shared Lord, a shared forgiveness, a shared salvation, a shared righteousness. And since there's only one of those kinds of things, and all Christians have them, then there's a shared mindset. That shared mindset included two elements. One was gladness. Gladness. It says they were glad and simplicity of heart. Praising God and having favor with the people. They had a lot to be happy about, didn't they? Men and brethren, what should we do? We killed Jesus. Well, if you repent, turn from your sin. Believe in him. God will send times of refreshing from heaven. That's a later on section here in Acts and the preaching. But you, he will send refreshing from heaven. Your sins will be forgiven. You'll be baptized to have the remission of sins. There is a lot to be glad about in the Christian life. It's not a sour, dour, negative, can't do this, can't do that, can't do anything kind of life. It's freedom. It's freedom from sin, freedom to serve God in righteousness, it's gladness. They shared that gladness. And also they had what the Bible calls simplicity of heart. I wonder what your translation says there. Do you have a different translation than the New King James? What does it say uh, at the um, end of verse 46? Ate their food with gladness and generous hearts. Okay, There's a possibility there of translation. The word... Uh, is not really well defined in our standard Greek dictionary, which kind of surprised me because that's, a, that's a, a, a tome that covers all the Greek words. But another uh, dictionary that I have helps. It's called Lo Nida, the two authors. It says it's a humility or simpleness of life. They were humble people. They were not high-minded or haughty with one another. And that would lead to generosity. I think the translators are trying to get at what does that lead to. I'm more inclined to think that it was the kind of humble mindset that, um, just an example comes to mind. You're with other believers and, and uh, they don't have maybe a whole lot to offer you. The Mother Hubbard's cupboard might be a little bit bare, but if you can sit down at the table and have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich together, other people would say, oh, peanut butter and jelly, that's ridiculous. You know, we, we need to have the, you know, the, 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 the shrimp and the uh, fettuccine Alfredo and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's great when you can have it. But simpleness of mind would not look down on that which somebody offers you. They would, it would be glad. It would be happy to be a participant because of true humility. Somebody, if somebody feels like they have to apologize, that's an indication that they know that there is a non-simplicity kind of mindset out there that wouldn't be accepting of that offering of the peanut butter sandwich, as simple as it is. We ought to be humble people, simple-minded, if you will, in that sense, not haughty or high-minded well, in any case, uh, then number 11, 
on our list. It says, verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. Worship is a centerpiece of the church. It's not something we do, listen, worship in song, for example, is not something we do at the start of the service to give latecomers more time to come in. You know that feeling? Oh, I'm glad they were only singing the hymns. I didn't miss anything. Oh, yes, you did, our sister says correctly. Yes, you did. If you came in at the end of the announcements, I wouldn't be so critical. You just missed the announcements. Of course, you're not going to know anything that's going on in the life of the church, but that's on you. At least you come for for the singing part. But singing is not just a filler. You know, we say, well, we'll sing them in. Yeah, good, but they should have been in already because they're so desirous to come and sing worship to, you know, oh, worship the King, all glorious above. Come, Christians, join to sing. Crown him with many crowns. That's not time, you know, filler. That is a testimony of our hearts to praise and worship God. So the real action of the church service begins at the very beginning of the service, not halfway through. So we've seen here 11 indispensable actions and attitudes that every church should have. Let's work on them in our own church family. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Or 12, if you want to add another one, like I did when I was talking on Wednesday. And think, which of those needs a little tune-up in my life and in the life of the church? Indispensable they are for every church. Let's pray. Lord, as we close our service tonight, I pray that you would help us to put into better practice these items that you have called us to be involved in and how we are grateful to you for teaching these things to us in the Word and and, uh, alerting us to them. May your heart be pleased as we gather together with joy and gladness of heart, with simplicity, praising God and having favor with the people. Would would you make it so that people around about would see the church and uh, be respectful of it, reverent about it, that they would see the changed lives that come uh, from people who are living lives of sin and that uh, this wouldn't just be some kind of ho-hum common thing, but it would impress people to see the work that you're doing in our lives. Help us to preach the gospel to baptize, to continue steadfastly in those things, uh, to share with one another in our needs, and all these things that we mentioned tonight. Would you bless your people tonight? Bless our brother Jansen as he continues to recuperate. I I wonder if he's able to even feel well enough to listen to this uh, message tonight. If he is or what? if he isn't, whatever, we just pray that you would lift him up and strengthen him that we might see him again back here. Um, and for his wife and for the children and for your loving kindness, we uh, are grateful to you. We pray that uh, you would help each of our families tonight, some not feeling well, uh, others busy with things, um, some perhaps being a little lazy and not doing uh, what they were uh, called to do. Uh, we just pray that whatever the situation is, that you would work in us and help us be more like Jesus and more like this early church. In his name we pray and with thanks. Amen.